Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode three of the Lions Made podcast. Today, I have a very special guest, my friend and colleague, Jonathan Harding, who we used to be uh, Twitter mates during the World Cup, but I guess now we're actually real friends since we've just spent about 50 minutes talking to each other about nothing and everything, solving the world's <laughs> problems. <laughs> uh, but welcome, Jonathan. I'm so excited you're here. Thank you so much. And yes, we are definitely no longer just virtual friends, but we are, we are real friends. I'm shocked to find out that you're basically down the road from me as well. So this is a true, um, yeah, this is truly unfortunate that we're doing this over the, the phone, no, over a Skype call. In person. We should, I don't know. I mean, it feels silly now doing this over the phone, but you know, next time, next time. Two uh, half German, half immigrants, uh, we should be drinking and doing a podcast, but you know. What <laughs> <laughs> a podcast, there you go. That's it, right? yeah. Next time, next time. All right, so Jonathan, please um, give us the rundown. What do you do? Who are you? Um, yeah, tell us everything. Uh, I am a freelance sports journalist who specializes in German football. I've been covering German football, I suppose, probably for the last seven or eight years. Uh, I studied German at university, um, left and got a, an internship in Munich um, that allowed me eventually to get a good understanding of German football close up and personal. And uh, yeah, I got an opportunity with DW for the... Uh, 2014 World Cup, Germany's um, international broadcaster, Deutsche Welle. And yeah, I've been freelancing for them and for other people since then uh, about the Bundesliga, their best players, their best coaches. Uh, this year, after two and a half years of work, I wrote my first book, um, Mensch, which is about coaching in Germany and about the human aspect of coaching. And yeah, I'm excited for another Bundesliga season, more football around the corner, although it feels like there uh, has been non-stop football really this year after fantastic Women's World Cup. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm also very, very excited for the um, this new season to start after the World Cup. It was so intense and I watched nearly every single game and it was kind of like, now what? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, now what? But at the same time, I need a bit of a vacation from football and uh, now I'm excited to get back into it. All right, so I really wanted to have you on this podcast because I think um, this whole coaches and athletes as human beings is a very important uh, construct, concept. Um, in my experience, both in, in coaching um, in the States and in Germany and, and being a psychologist, the sports industry generally sees athletes as a commodity, like a product. I always say they're like the produce um, mm. of the sports industry. So basically, they're born we got to get them ripe. We got to wait a little bit. And then they expire very, very fast. And then when they're expired, if they rot, we throw them out basically. Um, and they're not developed as human beings or don't have the worth of human beings on them. Um, I talk to a lot of athletes every week about how they feel like their value, their worth is hanging from their performance. Um, and that puts a lot of pressure on somebody who's just like you and me. So I find this incredibly fascinating and I'm pumped that you're here. Um, so we have a real expert on the topic so well thank you that's very kind of you <laughs> <laughs> oh man I'm pumped I've you were on the top of my list of people to have in here because I think we have the same mindset about this um mm. and for me personally as an athlete I had coaches who didn't care and I had coaches who truly cared and that changed my life and I would run through walls for them at the same time mm. I um I saw a lot of coaches who did it exceptionally well um Shout out to, uh, to Diane and to Marsha. You guys are the true heroes, uh, period, end of story. And then I've seen coaches who have done it absolutely atrociously um, and truly left a lot of kind of, so to speak, trauma marks on athletes um, for a long time afterwards. So let's get into it. From your perspective, what's a mensch? That's the title of your book. What's a mensch for our non-German speakers? Yeah, what is a mensch? Well, uh, for non-German speakers, the simple translation is it's, you know, it's a human, it's a person. Uh, there are many different meanings, I guess, to the word because, you know, in German, it's also a word that is, is sometimes used when you're aggravated or frustrated about something. You might say, dude. oh, mensch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is, you know, like saying, come on, man, you know, dude. Uh, it's the same thing. Um, and I think that's, that's very telling in a way that we would, or at least in the German language, that the response to frustration or to, um, to a reaction to something is to say, a word that is effectively describing who we are. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think, yeah, naming the book this way um, 
or this with this word was was really to get to the core of what this book was about i mean i was lucky enough to speak to so many people about coaching about the different types of coaching what makes a good coach you know, is there is there a formula for success is there a template to be followed and and the kind of changes in the modern landscape of coaching now that is very different to how it used to be and all of it came back to the same thing and it came back to you know treating players as people before we consider them commodities as you were saying i think that's something that is difficult in in the professional game and i think more concerningly is becoming more you know more difficult even in the semi-professional or the amateur game especially also at youth level um, i'm sometimes very concerned by the presence of such a professional setting for under nines or under eights yeah. uh, it does alarm me somewhat because I think in a way it's a dangerous approach because what you're in essence, you're trying to sell, at least in my humble opinion here, you're, in that setting, you're trying to sell something to an eight-year-old who is so desperate to become a professional footballer because it's the dream of so many young girls and boys that you are already one step into that professional environment because you've got the team tracksuit on and there's a team photo, you know, and you play whatever it is, seven against seven on a, on a full pitch with goalkeepers. You know, and I think that's already a little bit problematic. I'm obviously not a coach myself, but I think from a human perspective, there are some issues there and the kind of messages that you're sending from such, such a young age. It's not, it's not ideal. And if you take a step forward uh, and look at the professional game now, you know, I, I do have my concerns that if you have a generation of players who have grown up in that environment, then of course they haven't necessarily been nurtured or developed as human beings and that was something i certainly felt that a lot of the coaches in this book talked about that's why i wanted to get back to to questioning or to assessing those values um and that's what yeah that's what the focus of this book is about and i think it's also quite a nice touch that the word mensch in yiddish is also uh, referring to a good person mm. a human being with good values and i think on another level of, of meaning that is also true you know, I, I know I write in the book that, you know, a great head coach isn't always a great person, but not, does recognize great players. Well, I think that is true, but I think there is also an extension of that that is a great person can become an even greater head coach. I mean, the All Blacks, the New Zealand rugby team are the best example in the world for me. I think they have a, a brilliant mindset and motto towards what it is to be a good person in that environment. You know, and it comes down to the really small things. And I write about this in, in the book and, you know, James Kerr writes a fantastic book uh, called Legacy about, about the All Blacks. And, and in it, he does talk about something that I think is really important. You know, we cannot forget that even at the height of professional sport, when the pressure is really on the line, that we are still talking about human beings. And that after winning a game, you know, you as an individual should still be able to put your socks and your shirt in the right pile. You know, you should still be able to clean up your locker. Yeah. You should still be able to present yourself in a way to the media or to the people in the stadium who are holding the doors or, you know, are helping with volunteers or working on the pitch in a polite and respectable manner. Because, you know, you're a footballer, you're in a privileged position, but you're also a human being. And that's something that I think needs consideration uh, in, in the current coaching climate. Uh, and that's, yeah, one of the lessons that I certainly took from all of the people I spoke to. And I guess that's why I named the book Mensch, because uh, we really do need to, to return a focus to those human values, not just in football, but I think as an extension, you know, life and society generally. 100%. And I think it's interesting that you kind of name it almost as a, as a dichotomy. On one hand, um, you know, when we take athletes really young or really overall, but especially with youth athletes, when we start them in this professional setting with very high um, focus on performance, et cetera, et cetera, and immediately their, their worth and value seems to be dependent on how they perform. It's hard to function as a normal human being if you've lost, if you feel like your value has somehow been taken away, et cetera. But on the other hand, the entitlement that can come also with um, being taken out of being, you know, a normal population human being, a gen pop basically, and put on a pedestal. That's yeah. quite fascinating. Yeah, and I think, you know, that the extension of that is that in the professional game, and I was you know, talking to a couple of coaches in the book about this, is that you really need to teach players uh, and coaches, you know, this isn't just something that, that stays within the, the playing realm, um, that there are other things in your life that you need to focus on. 
you know, especially in such a high stress job, you, you need to really have a situation where as a player or as a coach, you can say, right, you know, we had a bad Saturday here. We, we lost this game. We were well beaten. We, we got our coaching wrong. We got our performance wrong. You know, to, on Monday, we will reassess this, you know, and we will, or, or on Sunday, we will reassess this. But for Saturday evening, I'm going to go home and I'm going to finish that chapter of the book, or I'm going to watch that movie, I'm going to walk my dogs, whatever it is. You need to be able to find something else to represent the value of, of quality in your life. Because if everything that you do is based on your performance on the pitch or as a coach, then every time something goes wrong, your entire mood, your entire life, and all the people who are in it, it's worth adding, is then that, that, that's all related to that. You're yeah. basically dependent on that. And that's a really negative place to be in because I think footballers and coaches need to, need to recognize that. And I think a lot of them do, but there, need, there needs to be a structure in which those people are protected because as you said, you know, people in professional environments who've spent their entire life working towards this goal and who have reached the absolute limit and the top of their, their game, it's extremely difficult for them to switch off and say, okay, you know what? I had a bad day. I need to take some time. But that's when family, friends, hobbies, those kind of things become really, really important because actually you need to find happiness in, in other levels and other areas of your life. Because if you can do that, then you're more likely not only to feel better as an individual, but to come back to your assessment of the performance that you didn't quite deliver the way you wanted to and give a, a more honest and a, and a better assessment of it than you would if you were still in a negative headspace. 100%. Yeah, it allows you to also work on letting it go and then working on changing it later. I mean, yeah. Um, a, big part of, a big part of the book, again, Mensch, love that name, can't say it enough, um, <laughs> <laughs> was about the coaches, although you did talk about athletes, but mostly, you know, for, for us as athletes, um, and with my athletes, I should say, there's an interesting mix at some point of the parental role and the coach role. And eventually the coach kind of takes over as an authority figure on more ways than just, you know, at football practice twice a week. Mm. Um, so the impact of a coach is quite large as it should be. Um, they kind of set the tone for the team. They set the standards. They are the guides. That's the purpose. They're the boss. Um, another interesting word for our non-German speakers that you use is um, finger. So can you explain a little bit about the importance of people catching as a yeah, coach? People catching, yes. Wow, that's the, the wonderful thing. The German language has a lot to give. Uh, <laughs> I, I think it is sometimes not appreciated in terms of the beauty and logic of some of its words. I mean, one of the chapters is called Leidenschaft, and mm -hmm. that's, that's the word for passion. But if you split the word, Leiden is actually the German word for suffer. For mm -hmm. suffering to suffer so actually how wonderful and poetic is that that in the passion that you have for something there is also a degree of suffering and i think i don't need to you know spell that out anymore clearly any sports fan or any sports person player coach will appreciate that that is true and, and can relate to that so mention finger is really another one of those great examples it's someone who people will believe in uh, and i think Jürgen Klopp is probably the best example of that in the modern era. He's someone who I think a lot of players and coaches and fans and people just from afar feel very captivated by because he's someone when you hear him speak, it's hard not to feel involved and connected. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think, you know, we were talking about this off air just beforehand, but it's about coaches who will make you run through a brick wall. You've said you've experienced that yourself. Yeah. during your playing time and, and it doesn't just have to be that you know it, but it, it is the most common example those coaches that really give you that extra level of motivation and Matthias Sammer when I heard him speak at a coaching conference actually said one of the most important things I thought is the real quality of a coach can sometimes come down to the ability to get that two three four five percent out of a player that he doesn't even recognize that is being added to his game mm. or that is coming out of his game and that's that is sometimes that comes down to human understanding. You know, what is it that you know uh, that is going to work for that individual? Because everybody is individuals and you have to treat everyone as individuals. Everybody is their own person. You have to know how to approach that. So 
as much as mention Fenger is a word that I think works uh, on a broad spectrum as, as saying, well, you know, he's able to, to bring a group together. I think it's also someone who has the ability to connect to individuals. Mm-hmm. I think that's what makes Jurgen Klopp so, so intriguing as a character. Now, of course, there are some potential negatives with, with being uh, very charismatic. I think sometimes you can exaggerate to the point where maybe you're overhyping an individual um, for the sake of positive reinforcement, which is obviously a, a natural part of, of coaching and it can be a benefit, but it can be, can be a little bit frustrating. I mean, imagine that you're a player who trains really hard for two or three weeks in a row and every day the coach says you're doing a fantastic job, but you're never in the match day squad on Saturday. You yeah. know, sometimes that can be difficult uh, as an individual to take. So uh, it, it, there's a fine balance as with everything, but mention finger is really one of those words that encaps- encapsulates the concept of being someone that you believe in, someone that you would follow and someone that really speaks to you as an individual. And I think that also works on a human level. It's not just someone who can improve you as a player, but it's also someone that you feel is connecting to you as a, as a human, as an individual. I think something really interesting that I picked up on that you were saying. Um, yeah, the German language is, is shit sometimes, but it is very fantastic in other times. But, <laughs> but basically, Anpassungsfähigkeit, the ability to adapt mm. constantly. So not just, uh, you know, to have soft skills is one thing, to be able to communicate is one thing, but to com- be able to communicate and switch between types of communication, leadership Definitely. styles, etc. That seems like what you were saying. And Jürgen Klopp, I think, is, um, of course... We know what he did with Dortmund, and now we've seen what he's done with Liverpool. And I think it's hard to argue that he's not an excellent coach, but also an excellent leader as well. And I think adaptability is definitely on his side. Yeah, I mean, he does talk about that. And I think, you know, that's why the, the quote at the end of the book in chapter 14 is the quote about him. Mm-hmm. Because I think he, that's kind of my thing about him. And I didn't want to talk about him too much because obviously there's quite a lot of great literature about him already. But he is such a great example. But... His, his quote, in all departments of life, including your job, if only the best counts and effort doesn't count, then life is shit. Yeah. And it's true. Because really, you know, what, what does that actually mean? Well, it means that there's many different types of victory. There's many different types of winning. And, you know, I, I do talk about this in the book, but I think it's actually really important uh, taking forward whether you're a coach or, or you're a player. You're right to talk about adaptability because it's not just about recognizing what succeeded in one place might not work in another. Mm-hmm. But it's also about recognizing that what you do in the 60-second minute of a game may seem insignificant to the, to the overall result of the game, but it is still part of your personal development and is therefore quite significant. And I think whether we're fans or we're journalists or we're coaches or we're players, all of that needs to play a role and that needs to be considered because, you know, life is very short. Yeah. And these moments of, of development and growth and change can sometimes be very fleeting and we can't just pass over them uh, and just look at the numbers. You know, I, I think analytics have made a, a number of positive changes to football, but I do sometimes fear that we are kneeling at the altar of them too much. Yep, sometimes. 100%. And, you know, we, we need to look beyond the numbers. I think the numbers can be very helpful, but, you know, at the end of the day, if the numbers suggest that you're, striker is really poor in the box in the last five games and that he's, he's just off uh, you need to maybe look at another set of numbers to check whether that's sure and that whether that's really telling the whole story but more than that you probably just need to sit down with him and talk yeah. to him and find out where why his confidence might be lacking and he might say my confidence is sky high the delivery's just been really bad or if you look at all of the chances well, the timing hasn't been great, but, you know, I'm getting into the right positions, you know, or, you know what, last week I lost my grandfather and it's been really difficult for me. You yeah. know, there are a number of reasons that can play a role in, in to form and performance. And that's why I think sometimes, you know, we've got to be careful about numbers. I, I might be wrong in saying that it was Bob Marley who said this, but I'm pretty sure it was him. It, it, was, it was about numbers. He said, if you're focused or obsessed with numbers, then you'll never not be obsessed because numbers never end. Mm-hmm. So it's true because, you know, we can count. And if you start counting now, you'll never stop counting because really they can never stop. So if we become so obsessed with numbers, then there's never really a point where we can say, all right, let's stop talking about them now because they're never ending really. 
Uh, and I think that's a really important lesson. I mean, you know, Bob, Bob obviously knew what he was talking about in a lot of senses, you know, not, yeah. just, not just numbers, but I think there's something in that, you know, and, and, you know, when we talk about modern sport, we often talk about analytics and tools and how to help athletes. And sometimes you can overwhelm athletes in those situations. But yeah, I think sometimes you just need to sit down and talk to them. 100%. And in, in sports science and diagnostics, we tend to get into the mode of we collect so much data, but then we only look at what we want to look at and don't see the entire picture. And when you pick out two or three numbers in thousands that are supposed to tell the story, you're literally only, that's like reading one half of the quote and being like, well, yeah, and, completely out of context, this is what it says. And it's confirmation bias. It's, you know, really. Always. You're, you're, ultimately, we're all statistics and anybody who's ever written any essay or any test or anything like that will know that you can always find statistics to support your argument. 100%. You know, there are always some form of statistic, statistical analysis that you can use to support what you're trying to say. So, yeah, we, you know, we've got to be wary of that. And that, again, is why I think it's so important to come back to those human values, because, you know, whether if we start treating, if we start going down the an analytical road and we just look at the numbers too often, then we return to what you were saying at the beginning of the podcast, which is that we are effectively treating players like commodities, because if players are reduced to their numerical values, <laughs> there's an extremely dangerous position to be in. I understand that sport as an industry is also a business and you have to make sporting decisions and players will be transferred or cut or traded based on their performance. I, I do appreciate that. But at the same time, there needs to be some consideration about whether those numbers are really the deciding factor. And also, if you do make that sporting decision, you know, based on good numbers and, and good reasoning, what is the manner of that departure? And how do you handle that as a human being? Is this a legendary player that has been at your franchise for 16 years? If so, how do you handle the departure? I mean, just as a small example, you know, Brighton and Hove Albion fired their coach at the end of last season, Chris Hutton, who arguably in the club's history is the greatest coach in the club's history, having got them promoted to the Premier League and kept them in the league in back-to-back -back seasons. Yeah. Most Brighton fans, myself included, will say that we didn't play very well from January onwards. Absolutely true. Did Chris Hutton deserve a much better departure than a brief press release statement after the final home game? Yes. Yeah. And you know, you've got to ask yourself from a, from a personal perspective, was that a really well-handled situation from a human perspective? Chris Hutton is one of the nicest coaches in football. That's not a reason to keep him in the job. If he, if he wasn't producing on the pitch anymore, then fine. You know, whoever, the people who are making that decision, you make that decision. But then assess the, manage, uh, assess the manner of how you handle that departure. And again, you know, we come back to human values because someone like that arguably deserved a lot more respect. And the same is true of player transfers. The same is true uh, of handling a number of situations in, in sport, whether you play, uh, select a player or drop a player or not, whether you make changes. All of those have to be done with the personal consideration that you are also dropping or changing or affecting a human being's life. Yep. You know, and in the first chapter, my coach, when I played said to me and he and he said the same thing he said this is not football manager this is not a video game you, know, you have to realize that the choices that you make whether at amateur level as in the case of the first chapter or as the professional level will have an impact on a human being's life yep. um, and that's you know that's really really important yeah i think that's that's vital because not only you you change the course of their lives but again like i said a bit earlier there's also some level of trauma involved in in some of those things like absolutely just to release or cut cut a player with no explanation who is a legendary player i mean we've seen that multiple times in germany arguably our um that arguably one of the best female players of all time got cut from the squad in, in 2011 over a, a couple of poor performances and got basically outed to the media by the coaches and let's talk about trauma like yeah you can't drag somebody through the mud who obviously well from a legendary perspective, deserves much better. Definitely. But also as a human being and now has to live with that decision for the rest of their lives. Yeah. That's, yeah, it's, football is business though. I think when we look at it as just business and treat everybody like cattle or as you call them robots, um, I think that's a great analogy as well. I think we lose so much in, in the money and numbers game, but you're completely right. So is there a, universal recipe for coaching success or in developing human beings that you've seen what's the pattern i mean you know by default that that cannot be the case because we are all so different that if there was one way to do it then i think a lot of people would have adapted it 
adopted it by now and, and put it into, into place. I, I do th feel that there are core values that need to be addressed. And I say this, it's really important. I'm obviously not a coach and I've never been in that professional environment, but as a journalist, I've been around um, players from an outside perspective, so they've only ever shown me what they want to show me. But you do get the feeling um, that, there, that there needs to, to be that, that humane focus um, sometimes. Obviously, again, I, I've never been inside that environment, so I can't say what I would change because I don't know what's in place really at the moment because football is often quite closed to, to people on the outside. And I, I do understand why. But in terms of a, a, a way in which to coach based on the people I've spoken to who obviously do have that experience and, and who do understand that, it certainly seems to me that the core values based around approaching a situation through the person first is really the best way to go. I think Nuri Shahin did an interview a couple of weeks back or maybe even just last week with Kickers saying Kohfeldt and Klopp were really all about the mensch first. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was very interesting, you know, because that's really the point, I think. If you as a coach can assess what works for each individual in your team and then collectively create a team out of those individuals, then I think you have some great chance or a greater chance of being successful. But there are so many factors at play that go into the, the, the success of a coach, but also into the coaching of a human uh, in, inside a player. You've got to make sure that the club that you're at understands the philosophy that you want to implement or the philosophy at the club that you want to join matches your own. If it isn't there, then you shouldn't join. And I do sometimes question managerial choices. Why are the clubs, why do some clubs appoint some managers when it seems like the managers have a different way of approaching coaching and the club is resistant to that approach and within a year and a half or two they're no longer the coach I, you know i think frank volmut the former head coach of coaches mm -hmm. in germany said this in the second chapter he says he finds it funny sometimes when they say that this is our dream candidate and then six months eight months ten months later they are no longer in the job yep. because if they're your dream candidate then you stick with them and you give them the opportunity to, to change a club's philosophy. So I think the club has a great role to play in your success as a coach, but also in how successful you are in developing the human behind the player. Because if you're at a club that doesn't let you do that or is literally just focused on results, we were talking about numbers earlier, the greatest example of numbers is not even just analysis, it's just points on the board. Yep. If that's the only focus, then that's you know, problematic. I would also say, not just the club, but through that extension, if the focus is on winning, then I think that can also be problematic. I think the goal needs to be, sometimes needs to be development. And winning is obviously something that everyone in professional sports wants to do. That's the point. But really, the goal is to, to develop and to, to learn and to grow. And I think if that becomes your focus as a, as a coach, then the product is winning rather than the focus being winning and you know you you're asking better questions and you're putting your focus in the right places i think it's very difficult to coach now in the modern era i'm sure it was it had its challenges you know 20 30 years ago but i think the power structure i do talk about this as well with one of the coaches he told me you know, the power structure has changed. I think there's a lot more power at the, the feet and the hands of players now. You know, ultimately, yeah. if you're not getting played, you can go to your agent. You can say, get me another deal somewhere else. And that makes life very difficult for a coach because that's an added level of pressure. How do you handle an individual who is upset at not being selected? So that, again, is something difficult. But you, as a coach, have to recognize that and you have to be able to handle it and say, look, okay, maybe you do want to leave, but look, we're trying to build something here. And I can see that you're a very talented player, but this, this, and this is still missing from your game. And I can promise to you, if you stay in this team for the next six months, then I'll be able to get those three weaknesses and turn them into strengths and you'll be a part of a winning team. Yeah. So it's, again, I don't think there's a template and obviously it would be too easy if, if there was one. But I think if we can really return to human values in some respects in coaching, then it's to stop considering players as commodities. 
and it's just it's really difficult but you've got to start talking to players and, and to deal with them in a way that's not always number focused the biggest challenge is the financial side of the game um, because how are you going to convince someone that you're doing something special if someone else comes along normally from England and offers them 200% more to do the same job in a different environment? Yeah. Well, then I think the coach is in a position to say, okay, look, you may take that deal and you may earn 200% more than you earn now, but you're going to move into an environment you've never been in before. You don't speak that language. You don't know anybody in the team and you're in a community or a society or a culture that you're not used to. You might have your friends around you and, and that'll be great. But look, you've been here for two years. One more year of development will put you in a great situation. You'll be more prepared, more mature and ready for that kind of move. It's not always easy. And you know, ultimately, if the player wants to make the move, again, we come back to power structure, then they will. But as a coach, if you can have that conversation to talk about human values, you know, do you think your family will feel happy there? Do you think you will feel happy as an individual there? You know, this isn't just about the financial side of the game, this is just about playing. You know, yeah. do you feel like you're going to play? Is this too much pressure? Recognize that you may have five minutes to show how good you are there, whereas here you have more time. You know, that's a whole conversation in itself, but I think that's the Bundesliga's great value. It still recognizes itself as a developmental league. The Premier League gives you five, ten minutes to perform, and if you don't, you're out. And that is a very difficult place for a player to be. So... No, I don't think there is a template, but I think all coaches who are successful, well, not all, but I would say most coaches who are successful recognize the value in effectively bringing up and educating their, the people in their team as much as their players. I love how you talked about the power structure between the coach and, of course, management and an Aga team and the big business side of clubs and Verein and Verbinde, federations and everything here in Germany, but also that the player now has so much more power. Now, what, to what extent, now in my experience, it's quite hilarious. Um, it's also quite dichotomous. Do you think that, yes, the coach influences player development, but what extent do you think that the players have the responsibility to develop and gain life experience as well. And what can we do outside of just having coaches to change basically the life experience that the players get? Because here in Germany, um, just so that everybody knows, we have the academy system. If you're good, you basically get shipped off with anywhere from six to 10 years old to an academy. And if you're not in an, in an academy, you're probably not going to play in the Bundesliga. And then you follow up through those ranks. Um, until you make a U17, a U19, a U23, or um, an A squad, basically. Mm. Um, and you're stuck in the system. So how can we get these athletes more life experience so that they're not just making decisions based off of a football career that's going to end latest in the middle 30s um, so that they can make better decisions like that outside of just coaching? Well, I think there needs to be someone at the club who, who's involved in character development and player development. And when, I mean, you've already got someone who's involved in player development. I'm sure that most professional football clubs, and I know that some have player development officers there, but you need someone in, in place who's focused on character development, who's going to help individuals set up post-football career options. Mm -hmm. Because even if it's not a financial situation, because let's be honest, in most cases it won't be. <laughs> every player, every person needs a purpose and once that purpose of football stops being a purpose because you retire whether that be due to age or injury you still need something to get you up in the morning and drive you you still need a passion so what is it that you are interested in and how can we set you up so that the moment you finish football you don't fall into a void into a into a, a situation of maybe depression where you feel like you're missing the identity of your life because as you say if you're very good You go from an academy and you might have been in that structure for 20 years and then suddenly you come out the other side and you don't know what to do anymore. Yeah. You know, because that's been your life. You know, your life has been training, has been grinding, has been working, has been doing strength and conditioning sessions. And, then and you don't have anyone that. telling you what to do anymore. You Nobody's telling you what to do. And, and, and that's absolutely a problem. So I think there does need to be someone in place because I think too much pressure is being put on the head coach. And I think we're moving towards a situation in football ultimately where in the future, You're going to have a head coach who's there for player development and you're going to have a head coach who's there for, you're going to have more, the, the staff size will grow. 
because I think too much is being put on the head coach at the moment because it's just un, it's unseemly to expect so much from one individual. You know, he's supposed to get results on a Saturday. He's also expected to develop 25 players in a, match, in a, in a squad and hold everybody together and treat everyone as individuals. You're going to need more people around them. And obviously, great coaches have great staff. You know, <coughs> excuse me, that's, that's a given. You know, so look at Sir Alex Ferguson. He, he always had a great staff around him. Yep. And he always used to change it. He used to change, I think it was the assistant manager. He always used to change every two or three years, I think. It's wise. You know, you don't get set in your ways, bring in new people, change things up. That's a great way to do it. So long as you can also run the ship based on your own, on your own core values. And I think if, we, if football started bringing in someone who was focused on character development, and I think you've got sports psychologists who are important and they need to play a role, and this character development officer could play in unison with them, but I'm not saying you know, they would be doing the same thing. You need people who are qualified and able to deal with certain situations, and that's what sports psychologists are there for. You certainly don't need more coaches from a you know. More coaches coming in saying, well, I can do this and I can be the head coach because, you know, you need to take out a lot of the ego out of the situation of staff. But you do need someone there who's going to listen and who's going to be able to interact with players in a way that allows their character to develop, you know, challenge them, give them situations where they have to think with their mind, that they have to assess, you know, conflict resolution situations. You know, let's talk about that for 10 minutes. How would you handle this situation? Propose things for them where they have to consider different things and they have to not focus their mind on just what they have to do at defending a corner or how to set up in a 3-5-2. Give them opportunities to grow other parts of their mind and their brain because, as you say, in academies, their life has been so structured and focused on football, 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 that they haven't had the opportunity to do a lot of the things that you and I, as, as normal, speech mark, normal human beings, have done. Um, you know, and, and it's almost impossible to replicate that because you can't take them back to being 13 and say, hey, let's go to the arcade and go to the cinema and then, you know, stand outside and giggle nervously while the person that you like is over there and how do you deal with that? You know, all of those situations or, you know, oh, you remember that time in the playground or when I came home from school and someone stole my bike or, you know, you, you can't replicate everyday situations, but you can replicate like solutions and situations in which they have to think critically. Critical yeah. thinking is so, 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 so important. And I think it's sometimes missing, you know, not just in football, but in a lot of situations. We need people to not just read the news or read something and accept it. We need people to read it and think about it and think, is that true? Do I agree with it? And if not, why not? Yeah. And I think if there was someone at the football club that was able to have time in 10, 15 minute sessions on a weekly basis, door was always open, not just as a friend, but also as some sort of a mentor, Obviously, those relationships already exist at football clubs, but they also already exist in a professional capacity. So that alters the perception between the player and the coach. If you as a player know that the coach in question is someone that you like and that you look up to, but he also expects from you to do your strength and conditioning to the absolute highest level, there is already a professional setting in place there. So right. you know as a player that you have to uphold that because that's part of your contract. Whereas if you know you're going into this person's room and all that they're there for is to help you feel more sound, happier, calmer, you know, and to develop that side of your character, then that takes some level of stress off you because it's not about performance or football or hitting numbers or whatever. You, you know that you have that part of the game. And in some cases for players, that's really something they're addicted to, which is what we were talking about when you retire. Why is there no one telling me what to do anymore? But yeah. if you have as a character, you have someone there uh, that is that is there to help you grow as an individual I think that would be a a really big plus for football but it's really difficult you know as you know and as I know as a journalist and you know because you're on the inside in, in that respect but football is a very closed business and it doesn't like change uh, in many respects and you know time management in some respects is well they were the you know, first one in and the last one out. Well, that's all wrong. It's not about the time that you spend at a place. It's about the effectivity of the time that you spend at the place. You know, you can be there for four hours and do a much better job than someone who is there for eight hours. But perception plays such a large role in this sport because this sport is so vain that you have to work really hard to get to the, the absolute foundation of what you're trying to do. So as much as I think this would be a great, addition to football clubs you've got a really difficult job in integrating that role because people will say well what are the qualifications 
you know, how are you going to safeguard, you know, these people? Well, obviously you're going to do background checks and make sure that these people are good people. But what you don't need is more ego. What you don't need is more qualified coaches because this isn't about the football. What you don't yeah. need is someone else who's a sports psychologist because you've already got those people, or you should do, in the building to deal with that medical side of things. You don't need strength and conditioning coaches because you've already got them in the, in the building. What you are doing is you're getting someone there to fill a void and they're yeah. not there to challenge the other routines. They're there to work in unison. And so if that idea was accepted by football clubs and, and you know, slowly started to increase, that would be great. And I'd love to see the effects of that, especially if you started at an academy level where you were able to nurture players and, and carry on and go through with them. But that's how I would do it from my very humble perspective and based on the people who've spoken to me for, for the book for Mensch. You know, that seemed to be the big lesson that I drew. I felt like that was the one thing that was missing. But, you know, whether anyone will do it, I don't know. I love that. And even the concept of, like, taking them out of the context of the academy for one day, like getting them out of, I don't know, Dortmund yes. or Frankfurt or wherever the sport, the, like the sport dormitory that they're in, getting them out of wherever they are for 24 hours to feel the outside world and not be an athlete for once and feel what it's like to be an adolescent at 15 who goes around and does this, that, and the other thing just in the middle of the city. Guided I and mean, protected, of course. I mean, the value yeah, I mean, behind that. Of, of course. But yeah, exactly. I mean, it's obviously always difficult when you reach a certain level of, of famousness. I hate that because it's not really a word of fame. Thank you, God. Excuse me. But <laughs> You, you, when you reach that level, you know, it's always difficult. You can't just go for a walk down the river. You know, it, it doesn't work like that. But there are situations and settings where, you know, you do need to try and normalize your life as much as possible. Because if you don't, you start to take steps away from being a human being or at least feeling that way. I mean, if every time you went to the shops, you know, someone was questioning or taking photos of you and, and your choices, of course, that would be overwhelming and extremely difficult. But at the same time, you know, you've also got to not let that be the reason that you don't do it. You know, yeah. I think players do need more, nor, not protection, but they need an opportunity to be more open and honest and, and feel free enough to, to be themselves. Obviously, it's difficult to do that when, you know, right now, every time you do something, there's always someone around the corner with a, with a smartphone ready to film you and upload it on social media. And, and there are thousands of ways to interpret actions and judge was it this? Was it fair? What does this mean? Ultimately, that's background noise that you as a player have got to filter out. You've got to see the value of going back to these kind of values. You know, you've got to see the value in thinking, this is time I need to take for me or for my family or for my relationship or for the people around me. And if I do this, I will feel more settled and calm as a human being. I will have secured some elements of my future, but also I'll, I'll have secured a much better foundation for my present. And that in turn will allow me to perform better in the gym and then again on Saturday and be more attentive in film room and stuff like that. So I, 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 think, it's, I think it's difficult. It surprises me that football hasn't done this. And I think it feels like in many respects that football has done this because there are so many relationships already at football clubs because there mm -hmm. are so many people already working there that people who already do one thing are already having strong bonds with players anyway. And I think that's important, absolutely. I'm not saying get rid of those. But I do think there's a need for someone to be there whose job is explicitly just to do that. Yeah. You know, because you're removing the professional level of whatever else the other person's job is. You know, we were talking about this just a minute ago. If you're the video analysis uh, officer for, or coach for the team, and your job is to take the team through looking at film and reviewing what went well and what went wrong and what went badly, you know, yes, of course, you're going to have relationships with players and you're going to know how to speak to them, but that's also still in the context of film. And they're going to expect certain things from you and you're going to expect things from them. And you also then, because you spend so much time doing the job that you do, can't then on the side be involved in character development. You know, you're going to, by coaching them in that way, doing your work, you're obviously going to help create their character and person grow naturally through that environment. But, you know, you do need someone who's dedicated towards just doing that. And I, I think if we continue with the numbers and the finance and the amount of money that sometimes circulated in, in professional men's football, it's so difficult to retain that focus 
because with more money comes more pressure and with more pressure comes more expectation. And that means less time for everybody. That means less time for the players to perform. That means less time for the coaching staff to do their prep and deliver. And it, it becomes an almost impossible environment. Let, let, never mind the coaches, you know, the people in the book that I talk about who effectively have such small windows in which to perform. And then they're just disregarded. They're just discarded and thrown to one side. And, you know, oh, well, you know, next manager's in or next coach is in or we've sold them and the next one's in. It's very difficult because actually as a fan, of course, you're thinking, right, well, that didn't work out. Let's bring someone else in. But you've also got to think that's still a human being who yep. has uplifted their life to move to this club, to try and fit into this community. It didn't work out. They're now going somewhere else. That's a big change. And change is the, the most inevitable, but also the hardest thing for human beings to deal with, whether you're a professional football or not. Change is really difficult and you have to learn how to deal with that. Yep. So if there was someone around to help, I can only think that that would be a positive. And athletes deserve not only the support, but also like the skills learning to be able to deal with those things. Those things will come at you, whether you're in sport or outside in life, but in, in sport, in my opinion, and experience, it's very, it can go very quickly, you know, up into the peaks, to the pinnacle, and then it can go very, very fast back down. Exactly. Um, it's like the fastest roller coaster that there is. So let alone normal, normal general population human beings need to learn those skills as well. And we could argue that most of us don't even have them. <laughs> yes. But definitely for athletes who are in a very, very specific context, always expecting a high performance, very focused on one singular thing, which is not normal anyway, or healthy. No. Um, and then have no access to even learning those things like we normally no, would good. a little. Yeah. And if you only have highs and lows, you know, those are extremes yep. and you need to balance that out. If, if you play really well one weekend and you're absolutely buzzing and there are people congratulating you and your social media and your Twitter's popping off, you, you will ride that wave. Yep. But in football, in, in a lot of sports, but also in life, you know, that wave will crest and fall and break and crash. And then the next week, even if you don't play that well or badly, if you just don't perform to the same level, suddenly you're nobody's hero anymore and you're not in the spotlight and things aren't happening the same way. And the guy that gave you the pat on the back when he walked out of the club isn't even there looking your way anymore. Those are the kind of things that can have a huge impact on a human being. And you just need someone there to level it out and make them realize that actually that's a lot of noise. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of background noise. And I would be very interested to know how... Uh, I don't want to say addicted because I think we all are in some respects, but how much of a role things like social media play, you know, how much noise yep. does that, does that play? You know, you need, you need someone there to, to balance that stuff out. I obviously think it's important that players have their platforms to, to share how they want to share. And if that's how they want to go, then that's fine. I think they need to be able to be free enough to make those decisions. But then again, it comes back to critical thinking. Let's assess the value of these comments. Just because someone that you don't know on the internet writes this, does that mean that that needs to negatively affect your mindset after a performance? Absolutely not. You need to be able to take that information and if you need to view it in the first place, which is questionable, then digest it and say, that's not the truth. I know the truth. My teammates know the truth. The coaches know the truth. And that's enough for me. Yep. Um, and, I, you know, again, if there were more people or if there was someone in place to help with that character development office, offices and player development, you know, that kind of focus. Yeah, I don't like that title, player development. I've seen it in the U.S. sport, particularly in the NFL. A lot of teams have player development coaches. And I think that it means something different in the U.S. than it would mean here, because I think mm -hmm. player development here means literally player development. But I think in the U.S., I think that's also a question of character development, that idea of looking after the individual and assuming that they will need help and, and you know, education and, and maybe a guide to what lies beyond their career or what they can do now. You know, I think that's something uh, that I think uh, European sport, particularly European football, could learn from, from US sport, where it does seem like there's a lot of help around the individual. I think for the most part in the States, in, in most cases, because we don't have such an intensive academy system, we do get the chance to go to normal schools like everybody because we don't have so many sports schools. We get yeah. to play in high school. We get to play in college and live those kinds of lives. Yeah, as a student athlete, but still a student athlete, not just uh, a football player who works, who's in the organization of this, that, and the other thing, who has to walk around with a logo on their shirt all the time, right? We're still 
we're still student athletes and we still get to develop like everybody else and experience some other things, not live 24 seven sport. Um, so I think their model is different and I think that's important to recognize and potentially integrate here in Europe. But like, wow, that was super valuable. (laughs) I hope that, uh, whoever's listening to this, uh, this podcast that you guys had your notepads out and you were taking notes because that blew my mind on so many levels um well thank you very much that's kind of you to say but i think that was only because we were both you know (laughs) having such a good conversation we both contributed to that no that was that was fantastic and the book is called again mensch beyond the cones by jonathan harding it's excellent i can only recommend it um and some of the biggest names in german football have recommended it as well so you should pick it up if you can and i it's it's available on amazon right john yeah, it is. Absolutely. And uh, okay. yeah, if you can't get it on Amazon, you can get it on Kindle form as well. Although I think the front cover is, you know, quite nice and, you know, <laughs> wouldn't look amiss in, in, on some bookshelves. But um, if you can't get it on Amazon uh, or you are not a fan of Jeff Bezos, then um, <laughs> you can get it on Oakley Books, which is the publishing house. So There we go. We love anti-capitalism. But um, <laughs> <laughs> mine's sitting on my coffee table. Um, it's been underlined a thousand times. I'm not through oh. it yet, but it's excellent. Thank you so. very much. I will have the link to that in the description of this uh, episode. So wherever you are, you can just look in the description. And where can the people find you, John? Um, John Blog 66. I'm on, I'm on Twitter mostly. Um, I occasionally post the attempted decent photograph on Instagram, although Instagram... <laughs> allows even the worst photographer to look excellent so um yeah I'm, I'm also on there under the same name so yeah i mean twitter is where i spend most of my days when i'm working when i'm not i'm nowhere near social media but if you're interested in following me on there then then please do i appreciate it and he has some very unique thoughts um very introspective so i definitely suggest you follow him all his information will be in the description box and where can we find your um your work John, where can we find your articles? Uh, well, most of the time I share all my work on, on Twitter. I mean, I, as I say, I freelance for a number of different people. Um, yeah, I mean, if, you, if you're interested in looking, for, um, looking at the work that I've produced in the past, then, you know, scroll through my Twitter timeline, but I'm sure you have far better things to do than that. Um, and in the future, there'll be more links on, on, my, on my Twitter timeline. So, yeah. All right. Well, I'm sure that we'll be back for a part two because we have so much more to discuss, including football journalism. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast and uh, we'll see you again very soon.